You're listening to TIP. My guest today is Howard Lindzen. Howard has been everything from a hedge fund manager, an entrepreneur of multiple startups, an angel investor, and a VC. It's not often you get a chance to speak to someone who has been on all sides of the table. In this episode, you will learn why Howard thinks the stock market is rigged, why you should invest in companies you know and love, much like the style of Peter Lynch, Howard's 8 and 80 rule, how to treat investing and business like a game, how to create a network of brilliant people, and why you should cultivate joy in investing. That and a whole lot more. For as laid back as Howard comes across, his career is anything of the sort. He's accomplished a great deal already, but he's still creating startups and investing at full speed. This is what makes Howard inspirational to me, and I hope you enjoy learning from him as much as I did. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Howard Lindzen. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Welcome to The Investor's Podcast. I'm your host, Trey Lockerbie, and today I'm super excited to have on the show, Howard Lindzen. Welcome to the show, Howard. What's happened? I don't think I've ever interviewed anyone who has been a hedge fund manager, an entrepreneur, multiple businesses. Some of them have exited, an angel investor, a VC. I mean, you've literally sat on all sides of the table. Of all of those experiences, I'm curious, which role have you enjoyed the most? Thanks for having me on. The I think the, the role that I have the most, because it happens so infrequently, but you know, you know, I've probably written a couple hundred checks into founders. But just those few that I've known, as soon as I wrote the check, I was going to make a lot of money. Whether the founder believed it or not, you know, I knew enough about the industry or what I wanted to see in the world that the investors presenting to me, like I knew they were going to be billion dollar companies. I think that's, you know, as a non-talented person myself, non-talented operator, sitting across the table and seeing like someone presenting something that you know is going to work is, is pretty cool. And then seeing it happen, obviously. That's actually really interesting. So is there something, maybe a common denominator between these founders that you see? Is it just a certain level of grit or just energy level of intelligence? What kind of stands out to you the most? So I've had good mentors who have seen the goal line themselves. You know, it's kind of a lot. I do a lot of sports analogies, but generally it's a founder that has unbelievable, you know, they get the timing right. They get the platform right. The, you know, a few examples are LifeLock, which was an identity theft uh, insurance company. Todd Davis, when he pitched it to me back in 2006, I was like, as soon as he pitched it, I knew it was going to be like a home run idea. And there was all kinds of headaches along the way to a multi-billion dollar company. But just the general kernel of the idea that, you know, was a home run. Same with Robinhood, same with eToro. Same with a few that I've passed on, Carta, Twitter. But the ones that I've gotten right on and the ones that I should have done all had this very simple product market fit idea. And it was at the right place at the right time with the right founder. And that helps a lot. That kind of like impact right at the beginning when all those forces come together can create some kind of explosion that you can get a lot wrong and still build a huge company. The day-to-day grind of building it yourself, let's somebody else do it. What a headache. I can relate to that. Yeah. So it sounds like this sort of a Venn diagram where all these things kind of merge and right into the middle. Very interesting. I'm curious on that point, have you ever felt that feeling 
and then it not work out. You're like so convinced, hey, this is a sure bet. And then it just didn't pan out either due to timing or something else. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple TBDs. I'd say the one that like, there's a lot of, of deals in the last five, six years that have been screwed up out of SoftBank. They got too much money. You know, they went too fast. You know, you had everything right, except you didn't take your time, right? Like the art of, of startups is, you know, the pace. And there's just been this period of the last six, seven years. It's ended, I guess, of the last six months. But uh, finally, for good and for bad, there was this pace of uh, capital that was getting thrown at these ideas that seemed like they were working. But a lot of money thrown at a business that's not quite fully tuned have been the ones that I'm like, you know, these guys, like, you know, it reminds you that like too much money can destroy things. So this company that we invested in called uh, WAG, which we were the seed investors out of LA as a dog walk, it's kind of Uber for dog walking. And it was like, no brainer. You know, everybody wants to walk dogs. Families have two working parents, really good founders. Everything was lined up perfectly and it was working very well. And then SoftBank came in and put 600 million in and like the third year in business. I'm like, what could go wrong? Uh, well, some businesses just aren't meant to be Uber. So I would say a lot of my disappointments, and they're very limited, because once an idea is working, it's really hard to screw it up. But we're seeing here in 2022 that uh, too much money can screw up a lot of businesses. Well, I know that one of your operating beliefs is that the stock market is rigged. And I, I think a lot of market participants these days would agree with you, given all this attention around the Fed, for example. That said, you've had this belief since you were starting out in the markets. I'm curious how the markets were rigged back then and how does it compare to today? The the idea of it being rigged is, you know, in the 90s when I started out before Reddit and Twitter and StockTwit and the internet for that matter, YouTube and TikTok, quotes were delayed 20 minutes. Our first go around to Robinhood and Reddit, there was Yahoo Finance and there was E-Trade. Imagine like seeing a quote on Yahoo buying the stock and it's from 20 minutes delayed data. And we were thrilled. We thought, woo, we are YOLOing to the moon. That was what YOLOing to the moon meant in 1998, 1999. And there was no mobile phones. There was no smartphones. We were just dumb idiots. But it just felt like we were close. You know, that's how far away that's, you know, we were, there were institutions and there were newspapers and then there were the uh, retail idiots like myself on Yahoo Finance. So, I mean, come on, the market was rigged. We didn't have the data. Alan Greenspan used to come on. They used to have a whole like day dedicated to Alan Greenspan where he had, his, they had pictures of his briefcase and they were trying to figure out what was in his briefcase. Like, it's not even like, you know, everybody knows everything in real time. Everybody can trade for free. And let alone, and now the Gen Zers think the market's rigged against them. Well, let me just explain to people, the market is rigged. And if you invest with that in mind, knowing that you're the last guy to know and that you're paying the highest price, that'll make your investing, you'll start out with less of an aggravated mind, meaning, you know, invest accordingly, like assume that Warren Buffett and Goldman Sachs know more than you. Assume that no matter how many great tools you have or how good your network is, there's people more in the know and invest accordingly because it's really because if you get upset about the whole thing you'll just go down a rabbit hole of like you'll end up saying the earth is flat and uh, that's not a good rabbit hole to go down to so much like any kind of sport the sport of investing requires you to like understand how the playing field is set 
and you know bringing the fees down to zero fantastic bringing or you know close to zero bringing uh twitter and reddit and stock to real-time information social networks fantastic but the game is just as hard because everybody has the same tools and so you know invest according to that and i think you'll enjoy it more I love this because you know you did mention Buffett there. He's got that quote about if you can't, you know, you're sitting at a poker table. If you can't figure out who the patsy is in the first five minutes, and then you're the patsy. And what you're saying is like, hey, we're the patsy. We know it. Yeah, I know that you look at investing also like a game. I'm kind of curious how you would exactly define investing as a game. Is it just simply betting on probabilities? Is there something else to it? And how did you kind of own the patsiness of your investing strategy? Well, you have to own the patsiness. So, so right there, you got to be able to laugh. You know, CNBC was always my, you got to have an arch enemy. First of all, if you're going to start a business, it helps to have an enemy made up or real. My enemy was always Wall Street Journal and CNBC. And they were easy enemies uh, because uh, they, they're evil. You know, they call it entertainment, but it's not entertainment. It's misdirection. Everybody has, and this goes to my, you know, everything's rigged. Why are they talking about why they are talking about? Someone produced the show. Someone whispered in someone's ear that this is a good topic. You know, something bubbled up to the top. And then, you know, the machine gets going as is media. And so the game for me was, you know, when I was a kid, we played a game called Risk. It was a flat board game. And it was about world domination. And what was great about Risk is once you played enough, uh, there was a game, there was some chance, obviously, a roll of the dice. And the same thing goes in the markets. There's probabilities and you got to stack the odds in your favor. But how you started the game and where you started the game and how you moved to take over the world was very much like, you know, you could see people's different risk profiles and strategies based on how they played this board game pre-internet, pre-anything. You'd sit around for six hours and they spoofed it in Seinfeld for a while with Kramer and Newman had this hilarious board game where, you know, they, they had to have people watching the board. But we would play these games. And depending on where you started, if you started in the middle of Europe, you were doomed because you had to protect all these borders. You know, everybody's fighting for Europe. But if you started in Eastern Indonesia, and that's the same thing with startups, if you start doing one thing really, really well and kind of polish it and hone it and build up your armies, then you can move up into India through Siam, and then you can kind of spread out that way and you're protecting less borders. So the whole point of investing a business is, and this is where too much money came into everything. Everybody was starting with global domination three, four years ago because of all the money. And Uber was, and Airbnb were the examples. You know, if they had a kernel of, of growth, you threw a lot of money on it and it became, let's go to China, let's go to Europe, let's just win, win, win. And if we flash forward to 2022 and NFTs and crypto, it's back to the art of building a business, which is how small can you be? How small can the team be? How fast can you, you know, polish it and then kind of, you know, go out into the world with an idea? There's some sort of art to that. And so that's how I feel like it's a game. And there's many ways to play the game. But with investing, you also have to stack the probabilities, right? You can't just... Every trade can't be the same size. Every trade can have the same risk return profile. But if you're disciplined, you can try and find trades or investments that line up in your favor, like a three to four to one upside. And so if you really are patient, which is hard to do, and disciplined, you can line up higher probability investment. And uh, that's kind of the, the only way to get ahead. And then it's constantly like, stacking and filling. You know, if you build your own business, still the greatest way to wealth. But if you're trying to become a, a billionaire just from the stock market, I don't know what book you read or who's who's lying to you, but that's just not 
Whereas the stock market is for growing your wealth and preserving your wealth and compounding your wealth. But in terms of like building your wealth, pre-internet, we were told that like a hedge fund was how you did that, which is why I started a hedge fund. And the reason a hedge fund theoretically could work is because you're getting paid fees whether you beat the market or not. So it really was an interesting model, but a completely unfulfilling way to, to make a living. But if you're just trying to make money in the market for yourself, uh, very hard to do. And so a lot of people have come into this market recently thinking they can just uh, get rich in the market. And we're learning that's just not possible. You mentioned the hedge fund there. I'd like to go there next. You said it's unfulfilling and yet you did it for 18 years. So I'm kind of curious about that experience and how it kind of led to all these others that we're going to talk about. I'm curious about you know taking that mindset of being the patsy and then going into the hedge fund world. Was that in a way to obviously increase the odds in your favor? Were you using kind of retail-esque strategies early on and did it change over time? What Maybe walk us through the strategy and the thesis for starting the hedge fund. Yeah, well, it was probably closer to like eight years. The fund is still exists because we, I made a lot of investments in private markets that continue on today. So it's still kind of an entity. But I was smart enough after eight years to go, I give up. I threw up my hands and I was like, there's no way to beat the market. So in, in 96, 97, as the internet was just starting, a pre-internet, pre-cloud, uh, basically you opened a store, you know, you, there was more, you could be an expert or you could fake being an expert because there wasn't that dissemination of information. And so being an entrepreneur around the stock market was starting a hedge fund. You could be a stockbroker and invest like that, or you could start a hedge fund, which was more of an entrepreneurial way is like convince a lot of your wealthy people around you to invest and take a fee. What I learned very quickly was I didn't know what I was doing. I wasn't doing anything wrong. It was just that, you know, Vanguard came along and, and, and you could realize no matter what you did, it was very hard to beat the market. And so in 2005 is when I started to make some private investments. So the way it worked was I knew, and a lot of this goes to Warren Buffett too, that you couldn't beat the machine, right? Like Vanguard was this great, simple, you know, disciplined kind of momentum, you know, market beating strategy, what it really was the market. And once you started competing against that machine, by 2005, I was like, what am I doing? You may be able to beat it for a while. And the latest version is Kathy Wood. And when I was growing up, it was Garrett Von Wagner and Peter Lynch. There are a few people that do beat it, right? Just like there's a few athletes like Tom Brady who defy all the odds. But, you know, it's not a good strategy to bat your head against the wall and think you can beat everybody. And the market you're competing against globally, 24-7, 365. There's no like season off. There's no... So the market is like grueling, like no other kind of sport or game in that you're competing against everybody in a multiplayer game, 24-7, 365. And then they're constantly throwing twists. Now it's crypto. So now you got like a whole nother asset class that you got to learn and all the correlations between them. So you know, forget about it. I've, I've long since said that uh, if you want stock market returns, you know, be in the market and manage your expectations to those market returns. Uh, venture capital became exciting to me because there was no index, right? And it felt like you had an edge because you had some domain experience. And I liked the idea that I didn't, couldn't see the price of my portfolio every day. And we're seeing that now with crypto, seeing the price of your portfolio really messes with your mentality because it affects your mood and it affects your how much risk you want to take. And it, it makes you do the wrong things at the wrong time. 
And so for me, investing in startups 2005 and onward, it allowed me to be better investor because I weren't, wasn't worried about the day-to-day and month-to-month fluctuations. You know, every company has these incredible gyrations, whether it's from bad hires or mislaunches. And if you're a public company and you're, you're marking yourself to market every day, uh, you're going to end up zigging when you should zag way too many times. And you know, the private markets kind of smooth out those type of mistakes. It's not perfect, but it, I felt like it truly gave me an edge. And that was when I started doing that full-time. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zook, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than $500 billion, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Kosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. In the holy grail of investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate, how to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds, how to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments, how investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income, and how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. You mentioned Peter Lynch there. I kind of want to start there. So basically, 
So as I understand it, you made an Apple investment very early on that you've held on to, but you came about it in a very Peter Lynch kind of way. I'm wondering if all of your best investments kind of came from that, you know, scuttlebutt approach, if you will, or and is that your kind of a golf swing, if you will, or I can't think of a better analogy, but sort of your style that's worked out best. Yeah, Peter Lynch, there's been a few books that have really, even though they're not necessarily stock market books. And I'm not a big book reader in the world of the internet. I never really had the concentration to read books. But Peter Lynch's went up on Wall Street and The Tipping Point, which was not a stock market book, but it was basically a book about tipping points based on like what happened in Soho. And I was a big Soho guy. Like I loved hanging out in Soho and shopping the stores in the mid 2000s. And I was building Wall Street. And so I really kind of believe that you can immerse yourself in these trends. And first of all, I was lucky, you know, at the time that Apple first started launching stores, that was considered a joke, right? There had been gateway stores and Dell stores, and there continually been flubs like computer hardware at retail. And so it was like, I'm written off before it started that Apple opening Apple stores would be a disaster. And I wasn't even thinking about it as an investment, but you know, where I worked in Phoenix at Camelback and 24th Street happened to be one of the first Apple stores. It was a high end neighborhood, uh, office neighborhood. And for whatever reason, there's an, and I wasn't even an Apple user. This is 2002. At the time, you know, to run a hedge fund business, you were using Windows. Like there was no internet software to run your trading programs. And all the banks were hooked up to like proprietary software. So you didn't use the internet, you didn't use Google Chrome. You didn't use Safari. So I was not an Apple user, obviously. And I went over to the Apple store and the iPod was there. And, you know, it was really well done in the way that you could take it. And like, it wasn't like you didn't have to put it behind a glass that everybody was doing. And, you know, I bought my first Apple product, which was an iPod. And I, you know, I put the earbuds in and I was like, everybody's going to have this, you know, and I just had one of those moments and it just kept self-reinforcing the more you saw the white earbuds. And the AirPods, you know, the more bullish I became. And the, and the fact is, I was becoming an Apple user for the very first time, even though I was in my 40s. So it just dawned on me that the market was massive and that the stores, if they could execute, obviously a lot of risk, was going to be a home run. I thought there could be thousands of stores. And here we are today where they've executed beyond all those things. But that was just stumbling and bumbling into Apple. So yes, all my best investments have come from me kind of Larry David and Curb Your Enthusiasm, you know, a modern version of like, you know, Peter Lynch, which is like a little bit more like self-aware, a little bit more anything's possible. And a little more like now that I've seen it happen in my life, I'm kind of looking for it for those aha moments where my own experiences uh, interact with trends. It gets harder as you get older because now I'm 56 and I have different interests than a 30-year-old, you know, meaning TikTok, like I didn't see it because I didn't use it. Tesla, I didn't see it because I wasn't a Tesla customer. So a lot of it is you have, you know, it's much easier if you're the customer and you're in a demographic that is so big that it's like impossible to ignore. So it, it's very hard to do over and over again because you get older and, and the context of which you see trend changes. Let's talk about that demographic that's so big you can't ignore. You have this eight and 80 rule. And originally I thought this to mean, you know, invest in small caps that become large caps, like a 10 bagger, as Lynch would say, but you're actually speaking about products and and markets. Walk us through this eight and 80 rule and and how you arrived at it. Yeah. I'm not very good at marketing, but the the concept about 10 years ago was that 
you know, if you're going to buy growth companies, or especially once the internet came along, you want to try and find these markets that have eight-year-olds and 80-year-olds using them. And at some point, really, it's two-year-olds and 102 years old. Like if Google has something for the masses, for anybody between two and 102, you see a two-year-old, four-year-old with an iPad, they're scrolling on YouTube. You see an 80-year-old, they got an iPad and they're using Gmail or they're, you know. So Apple and Google really kind of are those eight to 80 brands. They're really, you know, eight to 80 theoretically could be Exxon. Don't get me wrong. Like a five-year-old knows what Exxon is and a hundred-year-old knows what Exxon is. So you can prepackage. It's not a perfect thing, but I try and find companies that have these massive demographics working in their favor. And that just helps. Like if you're not trying to beat the market, or if you want to be trying to beat the market, try and go with companies that have massive, massive markets, and they're not subject to the same cyclicalities as other people. And so it's just something like a little gimmick that I try and categorize companies that I'm looking at and and want to own. And then there's obviously risk management around that. And I have this other term called fashology, where if you look at today in a world of technology, you know, LVMH is one of the biggest companies in the world. And Nike, you know, are they technology companies or are they fashion companies? So I think as technology continues to permeate everything, I think fashion and technology meld and some of the, and if not the biggest companies in the world will be companies that do that well. You know, Motorola was a great company, but you weren't going to buy Motorola sunglasses. I mean, they, they tried, they had partnered with Oakley. And you're not going to buy Apple sunglasses, but you would buy Louis Vuitton sunglasses powered by Apple, you know? And so there's all these different meldings that are going to happen now that technology permeates. So we talked about how you held Apple for a very long time. There's this quote that I love about, you know, how'd you get wealthy? Well, by selling too early. And, and so I kind of bring to mind any positions where you sold too early and watched something run on uh, much farther than you thought. Yeah, pretty much everything. I try not to get mad anymore because my mentors are the same way. Fred Wilson, Brad Fell, like you can't, you know, if you're not running the company and it becomes too much of your portfolio and, you know, and you're not managing other people's money, it becomes almost irresponsible for you to have too much in one position. And it happens to me all the time, whether I invest a little bit in crypto and it becomes a huge part of my portfolio or Robinhood, which then becomes a huge part of your portfolio and it stresses you out and you're not going to call the CEO every minute because you can't. So, you know, I generally am pretty disciplined about selling. Apple, obviously, if, if I had bought shares every time I sold a little bit to think that I was like diversifying, I'd be a lot wealthier than today. The odds of staying, if I could have predicted the iPhone and services and the AirPods, then, you know, I couldn't. So along the way, you know, risk management, unfortunately, has has forced me to sell my winners down. And those have been mistakes. But I mean, that is investing. The most important thing for investors to know, because you're not competing against anybody. You know, when you watch an investing show or you're online, you're on FinTwit, everybody's competing. My portfolio is better than yours. I'm making more money than you. I don't even know what that means. Like you're supposed to invest for the joy of investing and the art of trying to compound capital. And so everybody has different time horizons. Everybody has different risk profiles. So I think people need to get in the habit of like managing to their own risk. And that involves diversification and you're going to make mistakes. I, you know, I just have a good ability to move on. Maybe that's not a good ability. Maybe that's why I'm not a billionaire, but I also have my sanity. And you can sleep well at night. I, I'm curious how you define risk. You know, say a position has gotten so big in your portfolio, 
you don't really have a thesis that the company is going to do anything to not keep growing, but it's just a position thing. Is it just the sheer volatility that's coming into play or the potential of loss? Walk us through how you think through risk. Yeah, there's been a couple recently and an investor in a, a fund called Multicoin and they had a big position in Solana. And it worked in my favor because I couldn't sell. And so for a couple of years, I would have, I know if I, if I had owned the position myself, I would have sold so much earlier, you know, for whatever reason, mainly because I didn't understand it. I wasn't a user of the product, you know, so at some point last year, I couldn't sleep. I was like, what? This is silly. Like, I'm excited. I'm too excited. And I sold enough that would let me feel not like an idiot if it went to zero. I will tell you that that's never enough when it does go down 90%. Now I feel like I should have sold more. So it just has to be a, like a consistent being honest with yourself. And I, and I found that writing every day and journaling helps me stay accountable to how I'm feeling about these things. Or if I'm too excited, uh, it shows up in my writing and that's a good time to sell. And if I'm too miserable in my writing, it's a, it's a reminder, maybe I should be buying something. And so that discipline of, of writing it down and journaling has really helped me kind of trim. In the end, it's not a perfect thing. You're gardening at the main time and sometimes you sell too much and sometimes you won't sell enough. I think the art of consistently doing the right thing, like gardening your portfolio, is is going to pay dividends. Are you better off at the beginning of this bear market than you were at the beginning of the last bear market? And that's the game. Like you, you stack your chips, you move forward, you know that you're not going to perfectly time getting all your chips off the table. But what can you live with if the market were to change completely tomorrow? And I think if you ask a lot of people now, you know, like, hey, in March 2021, when everybody was doing SPACs, uh, guilty as charged myself, if you look back and said, listen, and I had these conversations with a lot, a lot of smart investors that were like, I don't want to sell. I want to owe 30% in taxes. And, you know, if I sell it at 200, it's really like selling it at 140. And I would say, yeah, but you own it at like 10. But, you know, you can only try and talk to people. And now it's at 50 or 40, that, that $90 spread of where they would have paid tax. So you have to, like, when it gets so good that you're not selling for taxes, that's generally a good sign that you should be selling. Because so there's no perfect rule, but I think people have to be honest with themselves about how they would feel if the stock did this. And generally, they can't see that. They can't see something dropping 70% for no reason. Well, here we are, and it's happened to like, 80% of the tech stocks. So, and no one can explain why. And guess what they're blaming? They're blaming Biden and they're blaming the Fed. And I'm like, why are you blaming one guy for an 80% drop in your portfolio? That's just crazy. But that's what people do. You know, some people have these very rule based approaches to selling. They'll have a checklist. They'll say, hey, the missed earnings, they're doing XYZ. And I've just never felt like that was a. Uh, the thing for me or the approach for me. And what you just described is way more qualitative. Well, or you could drive yourself insane. And, but if you think you're a quant, let me, I'll introduce you to a few quants. Okay. So you have a lot better chance being the Larry David of investing or the Peter of being a qualitative investor than you do of being a quantitative investor because all the smartest people in the world have gone into quant because it's a mathematically based model. And if you think you can be as, as iron cold as a machine, I'm going to tell you, you're not. In a world dominated by quants and AI, the edges are still qualitative. 
I'd like to talk about your experience with Amazon as well, only because you know I know you've held that for a long time. That was one of those bulls that was bucking nonstop the entire ride, it would seem, and you've held on for quite a while. What I'm curious about most, I guess, with that is the optionality you saw early on, meaning they did what you said on the risk board. They were starting in a very specific part of the world. They weren't boiling the ocean. They were selling books. At what point did you get in and what were you seeing along the way as far as the optionality there? 2006, when I started Wall Strip, I was doing a, one of my shows. We were talking to a friend, I forget his name. He had started a music company, like a, a database company. And we were interviewing him. He was talking about AWS and how it was started by Amazon and they're powering all these startups. And I'm like, if you sell picks and shovels to startups, that's a good business, especially as Web2 was going around. And then my daughter was using the Kindle. So it really wasn't about e-commerce when I invested. It was really about AWS. And hearing their name over and over as a startup guy myself, an angel investor and starting stock twits, we were all hooking everything up to AWS. We didn't have to buy computers. We were just outsourcing all that to the cloud. It was like a no-brainer. Like projecting my business across millions of businesses, I felt like I had inside information. And so it really wasn't about e-commerce at all. Never still isn't. It's still a bit about AWS. And obviously now it's different because people have choices between Azure, they have DigitalOcean, they have uh, Google Cloud. Uh, so Amazon, you've got a lot of competition. It's not, you know, now, now they're a fang stock and, and everybody loves them. And I still own a lot, but it's not like I'm as excited about it as I was in 2008. 2008 felt like the Apple AirPods. It felt like I knew something that everybody was going to know. And I knew it because not that I had inside information, but I was talking to hundreds of startups that were all hooking up to AWS and everybody was talking about Amazon as a bookseller. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise Flagship Fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com WSB. That's fundrise.com WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise Flagship Fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. 
As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. Another company where I feel like you knew something other people didn't when investing in private companies like Robinhood way before people even know what it, what it is, what it was, what were you seeing there that others weren't? For the aggravation of trading and all the headaches from like the last cycle, no kids were building an E-Trade 2.0. So it really wasn't until 2013 that I got shown Robinhood. I was up in the Valley and they had pitched me, they had called me because I've stuck twits. Wouldn't it be interesting if you could buy the shares, click a button on Twitter, and the link would go right to your brokerage account, and you could buy shares, and then reshare the trade, the social trade. That was like an 07, 08 idea that I wrote about. And when I saw Robinhood, I was like, finally, it was like a no-brainer to me to do it. I didn't know it'd be worth multi-billions, obviously, first investor, but I knew that if they build it, they will come. And it wasn't about thinking through the business plan or how they're going to make money. It was an $8 million valuation. It was just yes or no. And they delivered on that basic premise. And that's why it was a no-brainer. And I was right. Like, I mean, in the end, I was, I was right. People like to think they can beat the market. And Robinhood provided an on-ramp to tens of millions of, of people to do it. I'd like to talk about Howard, the entrepreneur, and and I'm going to stick with this kind of Larry David or like Forrest Gumpian kind of a framework, but I know you're way too smart for for that, but we're going to play along. Larry David's really smart. That's true. Larry David is very smart. Okay. So we're going to to stick with the Larry David metaphor here for a minute because it seems like you kind of stumbled upon StockTwits to a degree. You're on Twitter. You use the dollar sign next to a ticker. What happens next? So when Jack and Ev, like I said, I was when YouTube came out and my mind was blown. So I'm a hedge fund guy in 2006. I hate my life. I'm trading. I'm not going to win. I'm thinking about what I'm going to do next. And I'm yelling at the TV like everybody who watches CNBC does. They yell at the TV. But you're in a room by yourself. You're literally going insane. And then YouTube came out and I was like, oh my God, this is the future. And I'm going to create, like everybody could create their own CNBC. You know, that was my vision. And at the time, no one will remember this, but in 2006, when YouTube came out, everything was cat videos. People would just put a camera on their cat 
and take a picture of their cat doing silly things for hours. And that's what people use YouTube for at the beginning. You know, so there were two things they used it for women filming cats and people filming TV shows and putting them on the internet or whatever they were going to do. And the, you know, the media companies do what the media companies do. And we were left with cat videos. That's what led me to start Wall Street. Anyway, sell Wall Street, go to CBS, Twitter comes out. And I'm like, that really is the future of trading. And so I dropped everything. I quit uh, CNBC. I quit CBS. And I went to Jack and Ev at Twitter. I said, why don't you guys do Twitter of finance? You know, you know twitter.finance.com. And they were like, what? Right, you know, we have an open API. You should just build it. And I remember, you know, back then we had Blackberries. We didn't even have iPhones. And I remember uh, Fred Wilson was a friend of mine. And I, and I tweeted him on my Blackberry. I was like, ooh, you know, what do you think of this? You know, I bought Apple, you know, dollar sign AAPL. And Fred wrote back a message saying genius. And if Fred writes you back a message saying genius, you know, you're on your way. And I really didn't want to start a company. You know, I was 40, 44. And, but Twitter didn't want to do it. And so I started StockTwits, which was just Twitter for stocks. And uh, here we are 12 years later. It's uh, got about a million daily active users. It's a profitable business. It's a great little business. And it's really just Twitter for stocks. It's just for people who want to talk about stocks. And we came up with the dollar sign as a way to, at the beginning, like if you're, you know, if I'm searching for Apple and I go hashtag Apple, it's like, oh, I bought a green apple versus, you know, people in stocks talk about, and this is domain experience for me. I knew I spoke in tickers. Like, I, I don't know, I'm demented. That's how I saw the world. G-O-O-G, BlackBerry was R-I-M-M, you know, Citibank was C. So the dollar sign was our way of making sure Twitter, we could separate who was talking about stocks versus something else. So that's really, it was just a hack idea that uh, we did. That kind of raises this question. I mean, Twitter's been in the news a lot lately. They can't seem to make money. I'm curious if the business model with StockTwits is a, is a bit different. Is there anything Twitter could learn from StockTwits about how to make a buck? Well, they have a lot of cash flow. They also have about 4,000 too many employees. I've been giving out free advice to Twitter on Twitter for about 12 years. No one's listening. Listen, they made a decision early on to raise bucket loads of cash. When you raise bucket loads of cash, you then have different pressures than you do uh, if you do it yourself. And they had hundreds and millions and billions in the bank and it came time to make revenue. And trading is a very small business. You know, even Robinhood has proved that it's very hard to make money. But Twitter should be free for everybody, not even ads. And if they monetize, you know, trading and betting and data from real time, from the people that want to pay for the data, they will pay the most. So in a right world, Twitter is a pipe and they should charge JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Reuters, hedge funds, Bloomberg, billions of dollars a year and let every company sip from the fire hose and charge accordingly. Then they would have this great utility business. But when you raise billions of dollars, it's very hard to tell your VCs, hey, we're not going to hire any employees and here's our business model. And so it was just like early mistakes around raising money and expectations that set them on this path. It's a disaster. I mean, one of the greatest products of all time, maybe the best, and it's not used by hundreds of millions. Oh, it's used by a few hundred million people. But it's not YouTube. If Twitter had done the same thing and just focused on Bloomberg, the company would be worth $150 billion without selling ads. And they didn't know that business. So they didn't see that view. And I'll tell you who's breathing the biggest sigh of relief is Michael Bloomberg. Because Twitter 
could have destroyed him. And instead, he let Bloomberg sip from that fire hose, insert it into the terminal. And now all those hedge fund guys get Twitter. Let's talk about some of the, uh, you know, the pros and cons, the balcony and basement of, of VC, because you kind of mentioned earlier, illiquidity can be somewhat of a blessing. It's kind of like leverage, though. It can, it can cut both ways. And I'm kind of curious about the name of the fund, actually. It's called Social Leverage. What yeah. is the difference between social leverage and financial leverage? How would you define the two? Social leverage is about using your network. Obviously, the risk of social leverage is time because you can get so many things done. You have too many projects, and, but that's a, lot, that's a lot less dangerous than financial leverage. So you may have some more unfulfilled relationships from all this social leverage, and you may spread yourself too thin from all this social leverage, but you're not taking down the whole economy. What takes down the economy and what takes down industries is financial leverage. Let's talk about relationships. You just brought that up. Over the years, you've built this unbelievable network of brilliant investors and business people, entrepreneurs. Who are some of the people that stand out to you that have made the greatest impact on the way you think? There's uh, Roger Ehrenberg is a great investor, Brad Feld. They all kind of came up together. Some people that these people understood tech. They had been through a crash. They had seen winners before. Right. They'd experienced defeat. I mean, that's who you want to be mentored by. You don't want to be mentored by someone who's only seen victory. It was the right time with the right mentors on the right platform. You could have just shown up in 2007, 2008, 2009. As long as you didn't blow up, you're going to get rich. And that's where we are. And now a lot of people just think they're smart. But like when you have that many platforms launching at the same time, forget about it. Are you finding people that really change your way of thinking? Or do you kind of look at it and say, I respect that, but you know, I view it differently? So I really look to comedians and the comedian community is coming back together and getting a man- handle on the woke community and the right. And they're getting a handle on how to manage phones as you come into a club. And they're starting to push back against like the cancel culture. And when they start pushing back, when you have people that are that smart and that creative, Finally, just pushing back, you'll, we need more George Carlin's. Like, we need more Ricky Gervais. They may be rich and they may be affected, but they really have a way with their words of defining moments in time. I think that, that whole area is very important to me because it's a very strong community. You mentioned joy earlier, and, and I know you've, you've thrown this into some of your projects, investing for profit and joy. And the, the joy really popped out at me. I mean, it seems obvious when you just kind of gloss over it or read it. You say, yeah, you want to want to make money and be happy. But that word in particular is such a choice word. It's kind of interesting. It's not happiness. It's joy, right? And so I'm kind of curious over your career, which part of investing has brought you the most joy? For example, you know, Warren Buffett says he tap dances to work. He doesn't need any more money. So it's not really that. Is there something in the process or is it the idea that has come to fruition? What gives you the most joy when you're investing? You know, when I was young in the 80s, you had to be, if you were like, and I grew up Jewish, like Jewish community, you had to be a lawyer, doctor, accountant. Not a lot of pressure, right? That means you got to do school, you got to go to graduate school, and you got to go bill by the hour. That just was not appealing to me, right? Today, that's truly what AI is disrupting. Like everybody says, tech's coming for my jobs. Tech's coming for lawyers, doctors, and accountants, right? Like it's three paragraphs you need in a contract, right? And let smart contracts will start taking care of that. Doctors, let's be honest, no one trusts their doctor. We didn't trust Dr. Fauci. Now, I'm not saying good doctors aren't good, but like we're open to new ideas. And then uh, accountants, I mean, everything's cash-based account. Like, you know, we've already blown up the idea of, of what accounting is because everybody can work for themselves and figure out how to be cash flow positive. So in a world like that, 
people can actually pursue their passion. In a world of TikTok and YouTube and Twitter, so for example, my kids are not a lawyer, doctor, accountant. My daughter's living in New York as an entrepreneur. My son's living a golf life. And you know, 30 years ago, that wasn't a choice for any kid. And so that's joy. Like kids, they have other kinds of stress and they have other kinds of, I wouldn't say depression, but anxiety that the phone brings and all these things. But that's just, that comes with the territory. But with the smartphone and with the cloud and with the internet comes these unbelievable ways for people at a much younger age to find their calling and to do stuff they love. They'll still screw it up and they'll still make mistakes. But the fact that it took me till my 40s to figure out my calling, if we could help people speed that up and do it in their late 20s, that would do an incredible amount for both behavioral good of the world and just wealth. Because that extra 15 years of the grind, if we can get that out of people, is an important kind of message of, of what I'm trying to do is like, and I'm trying to lead by example. A lot of people that read me just go, oh, I want to live your life. And I'm like, well, if you're going to live it, try and do it in your early thirties. Don't wait till you're 50 like me. Cause I think it's possible. Uh, it's, you know, happiness is a weird word. So the only joy we're going to get is that when we are, we're not doing those three things, which is our work life. And if we hate our work life, we're screwed. So uh, being able to find what you like doing has been a gift and like, showing other people the way is is really fun. Okay. I have a bonus question for you as <laughs> well here. So, you know, you mentioned NFTs and you're you're leaning into that world uh, of web three moving forward. And I am in my early thirties and and I feel like I'm one of those people that was excited about it to a degree. And then I, I kept looking into it, following it, and I was like, I just can't find a a use case for this. And and there's this clip going around with Andres and kind of fumbling his way through a elevator pitch on, on web three. And I, I guess, you know, I've just been around it a long time and I'm struggling here. I'm struggling for yeah. the use case. Can you walk me through or give me a proper one? Yeah. It's not going to make people happy, but I'm very, I feel like I finally have an idea of what it is. And that's the problem. If I can't explain it, I'm supposed to be an expert and I admit that I don't know it. How can you invest in it? This goes to all the money that was going around, right? Like everybody's looking for a new platform, right? If you had started when Google Glass came out in like 2012, like they bury those magazines of Mark Andreessen, et cetera. These are very smart people. I know these people, they have best with me, the top of the food chain in terms of what they read and how they think, but they're wrong, just like everybody else. And when they're wrong, they're really wrong. So if you remember, there was Google Glass, everybody's going to wear glasses. And that was going to be your search engine and blah, 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 and Nirvana. And if you had started, and Andreessen did, if you'd started a Google Glass fund in 2012, I'm going to tell you there's a lot of donuts in that fund. Okay. So Web3 feels like Google Glass in that it's just the web. And people have built it into being like, who's going to benefit from Web3? Google, Apple. You know, why is Warren Buffett by Apple? Why does he think Bitcoin is silly? I mean, he's soundbiting. But if he really believed it was stupid, he wouldn't have 42% of his money in Apple. Basically, what Warren Buffett's saying is if Web3 something, Apple will be part of it, right? And it's smart because he's hedged. You know, if five years from now saying you, he's not going to miss the crypto trend because Apple's going to have a wallet because this whole thing won't work. You and I don't get it because it needs to work with Apple wallet. And by the way, we need to be able to pay for an NFT with Apple Pay. Like I shouldn't have to go and do Ethereum. So technology and it's all its wisdom has complicated this whole thing, which is a feature, which is a beautiful feature. The whole point of Web3 is for it to be complicated so that people, it's not for everybody. 
But then the VCs came in there and said, we're going to make this for everybody. Well, 10 years later, it's for nobody except uh, crazy people. So the way I think Web3 is, is it just augments Web2. Like if you have a Shopify page and you have a great little store, there should be an easier way to build community around your product. And that's where NFTs come in. But an NFT is not really going to work if your six-year-old cousin's got to download a MetaMask and then transfer 60 bucks into Ethereum and pay $100 for that transaction. No offense to the crypto people, but that's just mathematically dumb and like eight steps too many when they have an iPhone in their hand. So I think we're going backwards. And I think the way to think about NFTs is the opposite of Web 2.0. So in Web 2.0, the two hottest companies were Groupon and like a class pass. And the whole idea of Groupon was like, take the whole internet and turn it onto your sandwich store. And Frank, the sandwich guy, could go pay Groupon and have a million people show up on his door at the same time. Let me tell you what happened. It happened. And then Frank went out of business because he got all the dregs of society coming for their cheap one-time sandwich. That was the Web 2.0 version of NFTs, Groupon and ClassPass and Flash Sales was magnificent from an entrepreneur's perspective. I can channel everybody on the internet and make them go to one place at the same time. Unbelievable. Web3 is the opposite. If I could send you the best people at the right time with the right way to enter the club with my NFT, and there were rewards built into that so that the right people are using your product and they can form community around that, that's Web3. What everybody's got wrong is they think it's the same as Web 2. And Web 2 is about traffic. Web 3 is much more about the right traffic. And so I think it's more of an extra feature of the web. And that's why we're having, like, no one's having that real discussion, but like Groupon was a very Web 2.0 thing. And that didn't work. I mean, it worked for the founders of Groupon, but it needs to work for the Frank Sandwich Shop. And I think Frank's sandwich shop needs this to work with Apple Pay. And he needs to be able to give out a card that nobody loses for loyalty that's just an NFT. And that NFT can do many more things for that customer, right? And the more information you plug into your NFT, the more information that you could help your customer when they come in the door. So I don't think it's as big as what everybody says. But at the same time, the companies that are going to now build using NFTs are going to be better. And I think Apple and Google are probably the biggest beneficiaries of it. What you're, I think you're saying there is that Web3 will alter Web2, not necessarily change it. So Howard, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for taking the time. I've really enjoyed it. I, like I said at the top, I'm so impressed with everything you've done. And it takes a certain, I don't know, a flexibility, elasticity, something that to kind of keep your mind as open as you have to play all these different roles and to fit into all these different scenarios and or opportunities. So a lot to learn from. Thank you for putting out a lot of content on it as well. I highly recommend people check it out. Before I let you go, please hand off to the audience where they can learn more about you, find your podcast, find your research, anything else you want to share. Yeah, three things. Thank you. Uh, HowardLinson.com, my name to search it. I write pretty much every day. It's about the markets, the trends, my prostate, my family. And then Twitter is the silly, generally the silly dissident uh, Howard, which is can I get kicked off the internet? I'm trying to, you know, it's a, a fine line between getting kicked off and not. So, you know, it's definitely a more edgy part of me. And then my podcast is just lean back with my buddy Knut. We've done, I don't know, 300 episodes called Panic with Friends. You can search it on Spotify or Apple. And I sit down with like my favorite 
entrepreneurs, uh, the, the people I look up to. And, and I don't ask them, you've run a professional interview. I literally do not run a professional interview. It's a mix between how Conan O'Brien, like he talks about himself all the time. I kind of do that. Uh, it's hard to get me to shut up, but it's really just a wacky look into how I think about things and trends. And uh, that's an, one a week uh, called Panic with Friends. Fantastic. Howard, thank you so much again. Let's do it again. Thank you. Great to meet you. All right, everybody. That's all we had for you this week. If you're loving the show, don't forget to follow us on your favorite podcast app and maybe even leave us a review if you'd be so kind. You can always reach out with feedback or questions. I'm on Twitter at Trey Lockerbie. And if you're looking to up your investment game, be sure to check out theinvestorspodcast.com or simply Google TIP Finance to find all the resources we've provided for you there. And with that, we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.